Are you interested in the Aboriginal understanding of country? What do you think about water in cities? How can we become more connected to country itself? Stay tuned for the answers from Michael Brown. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today I will interview Michael Brown, manager at Melbourne Water. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, Aboriginal and Indigenous ideas, what water means to country, resilience and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Michael is a proud Barkanji Vemba Vemba man who grew up in rural southern New South Wales. He completed a Bachelor of Engineering and as a result of his cultural connection to water and growing up witnessing the impact the drought can have on a community, has recognized the importance of and feels fortunate to have worked in the water industry for 20 years. Michael has been recently been working within the Integrated Water Management Planning Team at Yarra Valley where he has been focusing on placemaking to ensure a continuous focus is given to the importance of water and elevating the cultural knowledge and skills of traditional owners in planning for the future. And with that, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your appearance on the podcast. I highly appreciate your time. Even though we just listened to your bio read out loud by me, I would like to ask you, who are you? Thanks, Fani. Just before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are all here listening today. Currently meeting with Fani, I am on the lands of the Yorta Yorta, but I acknowledge that there is potential contested boundaries between the Yorta Yorta, Wurradjuri and Bangarang mobs as I sit within rural New South Wales. I'd like to acknowledge their ancestors, but I would also like to acknowledge any elders or Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening in today. So I guess in introducing myself, I just need to provide a little bit more of my background. So I'm Michael Brown. I'm an Aboriginal man who identifies as part of both the Barkindji and Wemba Wemba mobs from my grandmother and my grandfather, respectively. The Barkindji mob primarily is along the Barker, which is more commonly known as the Darling River as it extends in central western New South Wales from the northern part around Burke down to the southern part around Mildura. And then the Wemba Wemba mob sits primarily around Swan Hill and Balranald, which is also then on either side of the Murray River. So I like to think of myself as being very connected to water, which has been beneficial in terms of where I have worked with my training. So I am a qualified engineer but have worked within the water industry for close to 20 years, both within New South Wales and now currently in Victoria. However, I guess part of what I wanted to share in recognising that this connection to water is related to my cultural upbringing. So I grew up in rural New South Wales in a small country town that was often affected by drought. And so understanding that and then the importance of water also, I guess, got me thinking about the relationship that I have with country because it has evolved from when I was younger, living in a small rural town to then now living in a city. My concept of country has not changed. Country for me, it starts to think about the land 
we take into consideration the sky. We also then need to think about water because water is central to both of those things and then the beings that form part of it. Beings being the animals as well as the plants as well as the people. And so the dependence as we start to talk about country and the elements that start to form that, be that the sky and how it relates to the sun and then the wind and then the moon and how that then has an impact and an influence on the water. And then water being central to a lot of all, like the lifeblood of creation as it starts to provide for the land and the environment and the gatherers and the animals. So that's where I just wanted to expand the introduction so that people have an understanding as to my cultural values and who I am are very much influenced by myself as being an Aboriginal person, but also as someone that has worked very, very heavily within the water industry. Since I am an outsider to Australia, I will have questions regarding your background and traditions. And the first one is that when I hear Australians and Aboriginal people talk, we interchangeably use the Aboriginal and the Indigenous words. Is there a difference between these two? There is. There is a slight difference. When I talk about the traditional owners of Australia, I, I do recognise both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. When I use the term Aboriginal, I am primarily talking about mainland Australia. When I talk about Indigenous or First Nations peoples of Australia, that is inclusive of both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So the Aboriginal for you is the mainland and Indigenous is inclusion of Torres Strait Islanders. That's correct. Thank you so much for clearing that out for me. Now, I completely understand that water is so important for you. As a European, I just learned that we tend to settle around water because that's what we use as human beings and we need that. <laughs> Interestingly, however, we are rarely talking about the water in the city We talk about roads, for example, as the black veins of the city or the green spaces as the green spots, green veins of the city. But we rarely talk about the water for the city. What does the city mean to you? In terms of the city or even the future cities, I guess there are three aspects that I think need to be considered. And I'm going to start with a smart city. So... I'm not going to jump straight into water. I'm going to talk with the smart city because we know that with increasing technology, we need to ensure that the decisions we make today are adaptive enough to start incorporating the changes that are happening tomorrow. And so with the, we know how fast technology changes and we probably recognize that we're in the digital age. And so that's where I go. How we start to utilize that needs to be considered today recognizing that it's going to be different tomorrow. The next part, I guess, starts to align with the green links that you referenced and how we start to utilize them. But with that, I would also then start to incorporate the enhancement and protection of these public open spaces together with the waterways. And why I say that is because I think that there's a recognition that we can actually start to use these spaces more than how we currently have If I just take us back into the times of the pandemic, where in Victoria, 
we were in lockdown and we were restricted in terms of our movements. And I think that time actually started to place an increasing importance and value on passive spaces as opposed to just the active spaces. As Australians, we are very well known as a sporting nation. And so we have always appreciated the football ovals, all the golfing greens. But I think during the pandemic, we also then started to recognise the pathways just through parks where we could be in touch with nature and then start to appreciate as a beneficial outcome that councils have actually now started to take greater pride in the surroundings because they're hearing that support from their customers or the local community. However, I also then start to look at, particularly with the waterways, how we may be able to start looking at improvement of them so that they're not necessarily considered part of a drainage network, but potentially we get to a point where we're able to also start looking at our existing waterways as a recreational areas. Imagine being able to have a section of the Birarung or the Yarra River further downstream, closer to the city that we may be able to swim within without risk to our health. The third aspect that I see as a bit being increasingly important to a future city is raising our cultural awareness. So as an Aboriginal person, particularly within cities, so much has been lost or damaged. And as land was divided up for farming or developing, little consideration was actually being given to the benefits that nature or the environment was providing that the Aboriginal people or the traditional owners had recognised. So trees provided shelter or a cooling effect or habitat for the animals that we needed to feed ourselves. We also recognised that by having some open spaces, we allowed the rain to stay where it fell and infiltrate into the ground or evaporate into the sky so that we were then caring for both land and the sky and then also understanding that the decisions that we were being made had the potential to impact downstream waterways or even the downstream communities as we started to, I guess, see the reliance on the movement of the water. So understanding that that cultural values are inclusive of the environment, our spiritual understandings or connections, and then both social and economic values, that's, I guess, where I, I think that we need to start recognising the importance of just educating the community. So the community is foundational to the three things that I just mentioned. But for this to happen, there needs to be, I guess, some recognition that we as an industry may not always have the answers, but incorporating the community concerns, their knowledge, their passion and values for their local areas and the issues that may be the missing piece to how we actually make sure that a future city is one that everyone then starts to value. So the future of the city is something to be valued by the users. Absolutely. Yep, Mm -hmm. by the people within it and the people that have to interact with it. I actually started to, and look, I don't necessarily want to get into a debate over what is a city and why do we need cities? Because I genuinely started to look at the cities as, you know what, they're really just large gathering places. As Aboriginal people, we quite often met at particular places as gathering places, but then potentially moved away from them so that they had their own cultural significance. Could our cities potentially start to become similar to that? where it's more of a place of interaction and gathering 
as opposed to a place of where we just gather and stay. We've already started to incorporate technology into how we work as a result of the pandemic. We're connecting more internationally without needing to necessarily jump on a plane. And so thinking like that, I then started to go, so the importance of the city really needs to start being how we actually start to incorporate the values of the community that's there and the traditional owners whose values should never have been lost. So how do we start to bring them back? And then with that, recognising that I've just touched on technology, I've just touched on the protection of open spaces and waterways, which we know our communities value, and then also raising the traditional owner's voice as one that we should be listening to and trying to incorporate as to what we do within a future city. This will be a very difficult question. And again, I think I'm an outsider. That's why I'm asking this. I understand this cultural loss you were talking about in the city, that the lands are gone, the trees are gone, the people are gone. How can we manage this cultural loss now? Because I wouldn't think that destroying everything would be an Aboriginal or an Indigenous answer to the cultural loss currently. What can be the answer for this cultural loss working together, obviously, but what could be the answer? Again, I'm going to come back to waterways, but just as an example, waterways are significant. And like you said, our cities predominantly are around water because it's an essential service that we need for living. But water as a lifeblood to everything that it is connected to is also one that we want to be able to access, physically access. And so that's where I go. If we're able to start cleaning up our waterways and ensuring quality of the stormwater that is reaching those waterways is of a higher quality, we're already starting to place some importance on the cultural values of the traditional owners as to the health of country. So as we recognize that, you know what, we don't have all the answers to climate change, but we have an understanding as to what we think climate change may start to introduce for us to start to tackle. And that's where I go. As we start to address some of those unknowns, there is an opportunity for us to start restoring some of that loss, that cultural knowledge loss, mm -hmm. whether that's by as we start to provide additional access to the traditional owners, to what traditionally may be private land or crown land, there may be still existing artifacts in areas that we go, you know what, this was actually part of a trade route from the south to the north. How do we actually then start to share that story? I'm not saying that we then have to quarantine the area to be able to knock down the houses and return that, but by sharing the story as to what was Nam or Melbourne before the city was built, you know what, the traditional owners potentially can help share. The community were really interested and I saw it increasing during COVID as they started to go, wow, there's some really old trees in my neighbourhood. What are the trees? What would they have been used for? And traditional owners did use them for tools or for weapons. So that's where I just go sharing that, like by incorporating the traditional owners and their knowledge and skills, but even allowing that time and that process for the current traditional owners to rebuild that lost knowledge 
through the finding of artifacts is important. And I think that actually starts to play a part as to how we rebuild that loss of culture, but incorporating it into the future of the city. Again, continuing on this difficult question train, looking at history, the question emerges for me that would the traditional owners be willing to share the knowledge with us outsiders, colonials, even after 200 years? I think we start, unfortunately, just starting to recognize that we need this kind of knowledge. So, for example, the bushfires would happen less and less if we would have done the traditional fires, burnings. Yeah, thank you. What the traditional owners knowingly did before the British came along. Would the traditional owners be willing to share such knowledge? Genuinely, I do believe yes. And my thinking for that is, and I think I see it as a potential opportunity, like as we start to continue to plan for future cities in incorporating the traditional owners, because not only are they willing to share, but they're also then, I believe, willing to listen. And so the opportunity then needs to be as people who are approaching traditional owners to try to understand how we may be able to improve are we also willing to then share our knowledge so that it becomes more holistic? It's not just, you know what, let's approach traditional owners about how we may be able to care better for state or national parks. It's how does that actually start to influence every planning decision we make as organisations, recognising the responsibility does sit across different departments and different levels of government. But that's where I go. We need to be prepared to work together. And so rather than multiple organisations coming at separate times to the traditional owners to ask potentially the same questions, it's how do we then just start to collaborate genuinely so that we are listening and learning and sharing at the same time, rather than exhaustingly asking the same question over and over and over again. Which, to be fair, probably is what has happened. And at times, the actions where they have been essentially in contrast to the advice that was given starts to create some distrust. And that is potentially something that does need to be overcome. But that's what happens with all relationship building. And that's, the, I guess, the foundation in terms of, yes, I believe traditional owners and Aboriginal people would be more than willing to share their knowledge if the opportunity is also given back in terms of the people asking the questions, willing to share their knowledge, because mm -hmm. things are changing. Country is not like how the traditional owners would have once lived. And as an Aboriginal person, I acknowledge that. And that's where I go. It doesn't mean our knowledge is useless, because we have been a very resilient people to be able to, I guess, survive the last 250 years of colonization on our country that we have lived for tens of thousands of years. Now, again, a very light and breezy question. Do you see this kind of holistic involvement happening? I genuinely do. And okay. I actually think that it's a strength of us as human beings in that we are a social being. We like to talk. We like to interact with people. And so that's where I go. We should be able to plan holistically because collaboration 
is really just about building relationships and listening to each other. I know I've made that sound really easy and I recognize it's not, but I genuinely think that people are starting to become more open to that method of planning just because it starts to, I guess, share the knowledge between each other. What is it that you know that I don't know? What is it that you have access to or responsibility for that I might impact by a decision I make? Let's start talking so that that doesn't happen because we know in the past that it has. You also talked about how in the Aboriginal traditions, there are these gathering places which were visited at some point and then left alone because the people moved around, if I understand it correctly. And you were saying that the city could also transform into such kind of gathering and then leaving space. Did I understand it correctly? Yes, you did. So within Australia, there are different mobs that may have stood at what I guess I could recall as a gathering place. And please note that I am not a traditional owner within Nam or Melbourne, but I do live on that country. And so if I talk about the nations or the different clans or the different mobs that are located in that area, there would have been spaces where often they came together, often they interacted and met and traded. I guess that's what I'm talking about in terms of the gathering place. It wasn't necessarily always that one mob was invited into another mob's country. There were potentially certain places where they might have met at particular times of the year, at different changes of seasons, just to, I guess, support each other in terms of trading goods. It's not too dissimilar to how we see countries interact now. I'm asking this because... Cities are considered to be sustainable solutions for so many people living on Earth because infrastructure can be more efficiently used. People are together. We can share resources. The resources don't have to travel far from their place. I'm curious how this kind of, if I understand correctly, translate it correctly for the modern times and the modern city how this kind of spreading out from the city could be still sustainable for future generations to come without jeopardizing the resources, without jeopardizing the infrastructure. How can this be sustainable in the best possible way for the future generations as well? Yeah, I guess I more look at it as learnings from the recent pandemic. We saw a number of people start to move out of the cities and into regional centres. And there almost starts to feel like there's a greater connection between the cities and what I will call regional centres. But having grown up in the rural areas, I called that a city. Like those regional centres were a city to me and I like to refer to them as a city here. So I guess it starts to become, how do we actually recognise that the centralisation can sometimes become, I guess, unsustainable. And so how do we then start to look at the connections and decentralizing people who are reliant on those resources? There is like just water as a challenge. There is only like a finite amount of water that we're able to use from the current pristine catchments that we refer to our water supplies before we then need to start introducing manufactured supplies, whether that be desalination 
to help supply. I guess where I'm talking about is if there are alternative centres, regional centres or cities, that people can still connect but don't necessarily need to be in the largest cities of Australia. That's where I'm looking at the future of cities. I'm not saying that everyone from Melbourne will need to start moving out towards Ballarat, Shepparton or Wodonga, but I guess I was just more saying they will start to become cities in their own right. And so the questions that we're trying to answer for a future city will potentially apply to those regional centres just because technology allows that connection to still occur without it necessarily needing to be for specific issues face-to-face. What is country? So country for me is the combination of thinking about land, the sky, the water and waterways, and the beings that live within. When I say the beings, I do start to think about the animals and the plants and the people So all living things that are reliant. And so that's how I describe country. We're not just talking about the earth under our feet or a boundary, a landmass that is a boundary that potentially is surrounded by water, such as Australia, or adjoining other countries, as we see in other continents. I genuinely look at country as a combination of those four elements. Thank you for this description. I am getting familiar with this kind of understanding of country because in Europe we have the countries connecting to each other, having neighbors and stuff. And it's a much more holistic way of understanding the environment, the surroundings around us. We talked a lot about what can be the future and what is the city itself. What are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities for you? I guess they are that we don't listen or learn from each other or the past. So I talked about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples having lived on the land for tens of thousands of years. And so they become almost foundational to how do we actually then start to listen and understand and then share back with each other as we build that relationship. But similarly, as we start to, I guess, recognize that approaching these challenges for the future of our cities is a problem that we all need to contribute towards addressing, then we also need to not be afraid to ask for help in the sharing of our learnings or problems and issues and challenges that we are trying to overcome. The next aspect that I guess I see as a fear is that we become afraid of failure, of asking questions to better our own perceptions and understandings and of giving things a go. So as someone that has worked in the water industry for close to 20 years, I understand that there can be confusion as to which organisations are responsible for which sections of the water cycle. But my hope is that to overcome that concern, we actually then start to work together in addressing, you know what, we're all part of the water cycle, so how about we all then work together in addressing the concerns related to it? And my last fear is that we continue to use country as a resource for ourselves, rather than recognising it as a being that we need to continue to care for. So I shared with you how I view country. People often think of country as just the land under their feet, without then thinking how what happens to one aspect of how I defined country has the potential to impact the other phases. 
be that we pollute our waterways and therefore we can't actually then use that water sustainably for the beings or the land. And then similarly, if we were to pollute the skies, how that may impact the water that falls onto our grounds or lands. That's the aspects that I go, we need to stop thinking of country as a resource. It's a real concern for me. Then what are the opportunities? What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? So I guess one of the opportunities that I think started to happen is that the broader society is generally willing to recognize the need for change and is often open to hearing new information. So I guess the opportunity that I see is that in working together, how do we start to ensure that the information going out is consistent and that we start to support the different phases and levels of planning, delivering and maintaining of future projects as we start to address the needs of future cities. And then with that, how do we then make sure that we're allowing for the flexibility so that we can actually start to accommodate the future needs that are unknown to us, but that we're then not restricting our future generations in being able to address. I guess the other opportunities are the recognition of water being central to everything. I feel like I'm on a bit of a record player as I say that, but as a river person in my blood, I see that it is an essential service for people, but we don't always consider the role that water plays for the surrounding environment. And if I just give an example, when we're talking about needing to combat the increasing temperatures due to climate change, then we need to recognize that water within the environment can actually contribute towards shade and certain vegetation providing a misting effect should it have a consistent water supply, therefore adding to water within the air that we breathe and the sky. I guess as we continue to deal with increasing population growth, we need to understand the impact of water as we potentially also increase the imperviousness of our current suburb. So if we do nothing, there is the increasing risk, I guess, that these areas within our cities face flooding. And we've actually just seen that more recently within a number of our cities. And so how do we, I guess, recognize that as there are, as a country that is more often than not facing drought, that there are going to potentially be times where we see infrequent but high intensity rainfall. And so how do we start to address that? And then the third aspect with regards to recognizing water being central is our appreciation of our parks and sporting grounds and public open spaces. We want them to be green and yet don't get green without water. And so that's the aspect that I loved at the start, how you talked about the black lines of the roads. And yet a lot of my talk today has been around the blue lines of the waterways because I see them as providing life to everything within the city. The third aspect that I just see as an opportunity, and we kind of have touched on it, but the traditional owners, but even just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are living off country, but in particular areas where they're connected to where they now live, are continuing the fight to be heard at different levels within the government and community. And so we have a connection to country, whether we see that as a moral obligation or something that is built into us as people who have been living on this land for a long time. It's how do we then, I guess, share that so that others start to feel that same connection and then value where they live. 
I actually think that that started to happen over COVID. And I mentioned that people, particularly in Melbourne, were, were restricted in our movements. We started to really look around us and value what we had close proximity to us. And I think that just by recognising that is what the traditional owners had always tried to do for country, how do we then make sure that that is actually starting to filter more broadly, I guess, within influencing legislative policies and regulations so that it actually becomes a mechanism for change for the organisations that are responsible for delivering our infrastructure or services? So the fears were, first, we are not listening to each other. Second, we are afraid of failure. And third, country as a resource. And then the opportunities were first being sharing information is consistent on different levels, flexibility for the future, treating water much better than we are doing it now, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders being heard because then people can learn how to value the place where they live. Absolutely. Just as a clarification, I guess, on that first point, I guess that was more around, I think, the opportunities that the society is at a place where they recognize we need to and so have become more open mm -hmm. to change. And so as we know that we need to start doing things differently, community potentially is already there to support us as organizations or as industry or as government in doing that. These will be two personal questions. First, you said that your ancestors live in current New South Wales territory. And now you are living in Melbourne. May I ask you, why did you move from New South Wales to Victoria and Melbourne? Just as one correction, predominantly, my ancestors lived New South Wales, but also Northern Victoria. So the Wemba Wemba mob kind of transgressed the Murray River, which is, I guess, the current border. In all honesty, the move to Melbourne, I had been living in Sydney prior to living in Melbourne. And really coming to Melbourne was, I guess, the opportunities that were afforded from an employment perspective. Having worked within the water industry whilst I was in Sydney and I guess feeling that connection, it was a driving opportunity to move closer to where my family live in rural New South Wales, but also knowing that the opportunities were, I guess, a little more limited in those regional centres than what I was hoping for from an employment perspective. And so that was why Melbourne became the choice as to where we would end up. Again, this will be a hard question. Were the choices limited because of your Aboriginal ancestors or because the regional centres, the regional cities are not really well-versed to employ so many people? So, yeah, this really was a hard question, Fani. Having grown up in country New South Wales, I had seen my family experience racism. And I guess that was one of the things that I started to recognize more that the cities were doing more in trying to advance the causes of limiting that. And with that, also recognizing the importance of traditional owners. Being an Aboriginal person, my grandmother, one of the things that she'd passed on to me and my siblings but my cousins was the importance of education and why she saw it that was because it gave the white people one less reason for us not to be at the table 
and not to have a voice to be heard. And so it was something that she instilled in me that I guess still have and I pass on to my own children in terms of we need an education. We need to continue learning and to do that, we need to be willing to listen. But at the same time, we also need to be willing to speak up and sometimes challenge the status quo. Thank you very much for sharing that. I know it was a hard question, so I appreciate your honesty. The other personal question is, why did you become an engineer? It's a very basic answer in terms of, I enjoy maths. So as a student, loved maths. It was something that my father, who is non-Indigenous, I guess, instilled in us as children, where, I mean, our games of throwing a ball often involved being asked maths questions as the ball was flying towards us to catch. And so as a result, engineering allowed me to use my mathematics skills and interest. But I even, whilst studying, started to question whether it was the right choice for me. Got to second year and was fortunate enough to get a cadetship within the water industry. And that's where I then realised I didn't necessarily need to use my engineering qualifications for roads or bridges or buildings. I could actually use them for water and I connected with that. Luckily enough, I guess, that's what gave me the drive to finish studying engineering. At the time, it wasn't necessarily what got me into it. It was purely just that I enjoyed maths. It's amazing that you were able to find your specific niche in engineering, which also connects with your Aboriginal roots. That's just amazing. Again, a very difficult question. Have you always lived openly as an Aboriginal person? Or was it, this is a decision I'm making that I am saying out loud that I am an Aboriginal person? How does this happen? I have absolutely no idea. And I would really appreciate your experience sharing this, if that's possible. Yeah, so I don't know necessarily how to describe it, but it's not one that I've ever hidden. So being Aboriginal is not something I've ever really hidden. Having children and now getting older and I guess having a greater appreciation for the struggles that my grandmother and like her children, my aunts and uncles, what they went through, I guess has been the reason why I've then felt more comfortable in going, you know what, this is, this is who I am. We continue to talk about workplaces being comfortable or safe places for people to come and bring their true self. So that's when I guess I started to become more comfortable in sharing my culture within the workplace. Can I say that at my current workplace, coincided almost when we started to look at developing a reconciliation action plan. Mm. It was prior to that, my close friends and I guess even my colleagues who I worked with in a team were likely to be aware of my Aboriginal ancestry, but it wasn't something that I necessarily needed to be, I guess, open about when I was working on construction sites where there were at times racism or racial comments. And so that's where I guess I started to feel, you know what, if this is something that the organization is now looking at supporting and creating this safe space, I'm starting to feel more comfortable in sharing who I am. And I guess there was some surprise 
when I did start to speak up and identify more openly, there were people that did know and so were obviously supportive of me than being feeling comfortable enough to do that. But I guess it's now something that I almost go, it's who I am. Like I've never really necessarily been able to avoid it or hide it because it impacted me in the decisions I was making, particularly when I worked in an area of construction and there were decisions being made as to what constituted us needing to, as a legislative requirement, undertake a cultural heritage management plan with the traditional owners. And as an Aboriginal engineer, I kind of went, why is there a question about this? Like, if this was happening on my country, I'd want to know. So really, why is there a question about this? And that's, I guess, where it started to become I started to recognize that I was having some personal conflict as to what my job was and who I was. And to be able to, I guess, address some of those concerns, I felt comfortable enough and supported enough with the knowing that the company was going on that journey of putting together a reconciliation action plan to speak up and go, this isn't okay. And I'm so glad that we're looking at trying to identify how we do better. It's a real strength that you are doing that and you are incorporating this kind of holistic approach to your work. That's amazing. And this brings me to my last three questions. What are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities for you? I mentioned before, I think that as an opportunity that broader community, I think has a willingness to accept change. And so we need to just recognize that change is happening with regards to the future of our cities. So as a result, I believe that we are starting to, I guess, become a little bit more comfortable sitting within the discomfort of the unknown. And so just accepting of that change is, I guess, one of the strengths that I'd like to point out. Concerning NAM or any city, I don't think we necessarily understand the impact of climate change. And with that, we couldn't predict the impact of the pandemic to our population growth. And that occurred worldwide. And then I guess, as I mentioned, with us sitting potentially in the midst of the digital age, how we start to recognize that technology is continually changing how we live. And so none of the outcomes from these things are known. And yet we recognize that we need to adapt to address these things into our future. And so although I see that as a strength, I do also want to just reiterate that I know that change is not easy and accepting all of that, but I genuinely feel that our strength as a people is we recognize that it's going to have to happen and we're accepting of it. It's just how we then deal with that is also sometimes difficult. In saying that, I guess I see that we're resilient. People are resilient. I say that as an Aboriginal person because we've shown that our people can withstand hardships and still overcome adversity, whilst needing to ensure that we acknowledge the past atrocities that have happened, we can still move forward together. And this doesn't need to be about assigning blame, but we can acknowledge the impact of past decisions and improve how we move into the future. Do you think there is a benefit in finding out who decided to remove all the trees from certain parts of the city? It happened. So... We acknowledge that and we try to move forward. And 
use the efforts of the government and the community members and homeowners to increase the level of canopy cover and vegetation in their local regions. I don't think there is a benefit to trying to assign blame. I'm just saying that we can still learn to move forward. And that resilience will hopefully also give people that strength in overcoming the concern I raised earlier in terms of fear of failure or not giving things a go. And then the last strength I think, and I've touched on, is that as social beings, I think that we're recognizing that we need to work more closely together. And so that holistic planning or delivery or just that need for collaboration is something that we're starting to see as a benefit. And just being people who need to often interact with each other, that's a strength that I think we have. I'm not saying that building relationships comes is easy for everybody, but what I am saying is that we know that it can be done. And by working together, we actually can probably have problems a lot easier. That old adage is a problem shared is a problem halved often rings true when we're talking about planning for future cities. Coming back to the first strengths, being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Corey Gray in episode 126 talked about how he thinks that people are getting pragmatic regarding climate change, that we arrived to that point that everybody agrees that there is a climate change and we need to do something. And this is a pragmatic approach. Do you believe that we are at a point that everybody agrees that, for example, climate change is real, we need to do something, and this is the point where we have to do something? I would like to say yes, but no, I don't. I don't Mm -hmm. think everyone is in that same understanding. I think that there are still people that think that this is just a cycle that we will go through as Earth, and we may potentially at some point return to an ice age and So that's where I go. No, that there are still people out there that question climate change. What I do think that people are starting to recognise is that these changes are happening and they need to be addressed. We may see that there are times of El Nino and El Nino, but how do we actually start to address them? Because we didn't necessarily have that knowledge when we started to build our cities in the past. So that's the aspect that I go, yeah. I would love for everyone just to acknowledge that climate change is real and that there are aspects that we know are going to change and so we have to deal with them. But I don't know if everyone is on the page that they necessarily acknowledge climate change, but I think I believe that everyone is acknowledging that we do need to do things differently to combat what is happening. I predominantly within the water industry see it as increasing temperatures and the high intense but potentially less frequent rainfall. Regarding climate change, it's also a really important point when we talk about climate change that we are not pointing fingers, we are not blaming anybody because what happened is happened, we need to move forward. However, this is really hard for some of the younger generation to accept that It's no use to blame some others because we need to work with what we have. You mentioned this kind of approach in Aboriginal terms. Is this kind of understanding and approach usual that this is what happened, let's acknowledge it, let's learn from it and let's move forward from it instead of blaming and finding out who cut those trees 
Is this a usual approach in Aboriginal circles? I would like to say yes, and increasingly so. We've had an apology from the government. We have a time for reconciliation, and we also have a time for celebration, which is NADOG. There are still decisions or policies, I guess, that are in place that do have a negative impact on our people. And that's where I don't necessarily say it's about assigning blame, but in acknowledging that for us to move forward together, we need to potentially remove some of those barriers or policies. Don't really want to get into it, but the celebration of Australia Day, it, it is a more recent public holiday. And I don't think it is difficult for us to find a date that we can genuinely all celebrate as a nation. I don't want to get into that conversation, but that's where I just go. If I use that as an example, it makes it quite difficult when we have the opposite side of the argument as to, but Australia was founded and that's why we need to celebrate it. And I guess the difficulty that I have with that is, but it was also the time that impacted my people. So it introduced viruses and bacteria and diseases that we weren't able to combat because we hadn't been exposed to them in the past. And so our people died. There were policies that were then put in place as a result of the colonization, then resulted in massacres or removal of our children. And that trauma still exists. And so that's where I go. I understand, but like, I guess, looking at what are those systemic issues that are still in place that we need to change so that we don't have to continue for our people having to deal with that trauma. And I use Australia Day just as an easy example, but there are other policies in place that potentially result in trauma, such as the dispossession and then loss of access to land. And whether that be under private ownership or because it sits within protected catchments, like it varies, but it doesn't make things easier for us to move forward. If I can use just another example, the potential name change of the Maroondah Hospital, the one hospital in the state that has been given a name in language, why would we then want to take a step back in changing that to honour the monarchy that potentially created so much of these issues when we know that in the future cities there are going to be other opportunities to be able to recognise the efforts of Queen Elizabeth II. So that's where I go. It's not necessarily about blame, but it can be difficult to move forward when there are still policies or decisions being made that, I guess, continue to create trauma for our people. I can only just talk about from the urban perspective and this is a way broader sense, but even in urban perspective, there are so many policies we would need to replace because those were for the last century or before the last century. And we need to move forward in a better way. So I completely understand that with the Aboriginal lens, it's even more tragic that there are still such policies which are discriminating against your people. And it just makes so many things so much harder than they should be. I absolutely agree. Michael, you have been very generous with your time. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? So I'd like to see myself as continuing to be an active listener and a continual learner. 
And then with that, an advocate for change. I recognize that as one person, I may not be able to achieve all that my heart desires, but I hope for my children and the future generations, but the community and environment that we recognize that there is an importance of doing this together. And when I say together, I'm not just talking about white people with Aboriginal people or traditional owners with government organizations. I am genuinely talking about as a community and a society that we actually start to look at our future cities, what it is that we value, how do we actually then hold that in place to enhance that? What is it that's not working so well? And then how do we actually start to adapt that so that we don't have the reliance on those aspects of the cities that we don't necessarily need? I know that you've mentioned the roads and the importance of roads, and we're continually looking at how we can actually start to increase public transport opportunities. What is it about us as people that requires that movement, that transition across a city? So that's where I just go, we're not going to be able to solve these problems as individuals. There are some brilliant individuals looking into these spaces, but they continue to look at other people's opinions. They look for different perspectives, all to inform themselves. And that's where I go, that doesn't happen if we don't work together. And so just by being an advocate for change, but recognizing that my view today could also change tomorrow, I think just allows me to be a better person planner or person that is working within this space. Thank you so much, Michael, for your honesty and openness in this conversation and your work with making water having the right place in our cities. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? I would like to think that I've shared enough of myself for people to understand, you know what, it's not easy for me. It's not easy for the industry. It's certainly not easy for our traditional owners and Aboriginal people in general, but I also think that it's not easy for the community. And so that's where I go. We like to talk. Let's make sure we listen instead of everybody talking at the same time, because that was also, I guess, a fundamental value or cultural aspect in terms of learning from elders as an Aboriginal person. So by listening to the stories and listening to what may have been passed down through generations, that is what I would love for us to be able to start doing. I just recognize it as not a new concept, and yet it's something that I hope that we recognize we can start to do a lot more of. Thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Thanks, Fanny. It was really interesting to hear from Michael about the opportunities in hearing each other out and thus learning from each other, not to mention his interest in water for country. Paul Satur talked about similar issues in episode 135. You can find out more about Michael online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Michael's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast? 